to Subtext and Discourse, a podcast which takes you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. My name's Michael Dooney, Director of Jarvis Dooney Gallery and host of the show. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Alain Survey, the passionate and often outspoken art collector who entered the art world from behind the curtain whilst working in New York as an investment banker in the 90s. I've known Alain for many years now and have always appreciated his hyper-realist view of the world and open-minded approach to life. We recorded our interview during the opening week of Recontra's Al International Photography Festival in July 2022. Be sure to follow Subtext and Discourse Art World Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Leave a review and share the podcast with your friends. Now, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Alain Survey. Thank you, Alain, for taking the time out. Great that we saw each other in Al, as we often do. How has your week been? Sometimes you think that good things will wear out, and it's my something like probably 22nd time to the rencontre. So every time I say, okay, it will be the end of it. It's like a good restaurant or, you know, a good series or something. At the end, it will turn turn sour. Mm-hmm. And no, every time there is a great discovery. And photography is a medium that is now less fashionable. And it's got enormous difficulty finding its spot in the art market, as you know. Still, but, you uh, think I mean, now? Sure, yeah. definitely, more than ever. I mean, no one to want to consider photography now in the art market. I mean, look at the major art fairs, there's no photography really. Yeah, that's um, true. But despite this, and it's, it's extremely difficult. And one of the reasons is that everybody's got the feeling they can take a photograph. So why you need to have to be an artist to do it? Uh, and it's partly true. So it's always interesting to come back here and to see what's going on, the idea. And yeah, I've got some two concepts that I discovered this time. It's called post-documentary, which means including the subjectivity or the creativity of, of the photographer in the works, meaning that he's not just an observer, but he tried to give something personal to it, like an exchange. And the second thing is just that subjectivity of the photography, which is logical because it's the same in uh, in journalism in some way. You know, people want your opinion now, just the statement of facts in some way. You don't need to take so much care about it. So, so it's interesting. It's kind of the evolution, and it's always interesting to see that those evolution are in other part of the um, of the world or the cultural world. So it's always interesting. So a good time. Plus the fact that it's a, it's a lovely, lovely place. Yeah. So is that why you keep coming back every year or for 22 years you've kept coming to all? You know, the thing that I really, with all the money in the world that you cannot buy is time. Mm-hmm. So in some way I'm spending time here to save time because if you're interested in photography, which I am, if you come here, you're saving a lot of time during the rest of the year because in fact you see some of the best, um, you know, you've got uh, great creators making the choices, a great organization. So at the end of the day in two or three days, which I stretch out to four because it's such a nice place. Then eventually you see everything you're going to see in photography around the world in the next couple of years. So it's in fact a, a time saver rather than a time waste. Yeah. So that's why I'm coming. Oh, good. Because your, your journey as a collector started with photography, didn't it? Like some of the very early works that you purchased were photographs. Absolutely. And do you think that photography is still a good gateway drug for collectors and people that want to collect art like that's a good entry point i must explain why i started with photography my my entry point is a museum the biggest and the strongest emotion i had with art was always in museum and stays in museums or biennials Mm -hmm. and then i say 
how can I bring the museum home? Then I thought, photography is editions. So I can actually have home the exact same work that I saw over there. Mm. So that's where it started. That's why photography uh, is really, really the reason. And then it's a medium by itself and it's a very intelligent, interesting medium. But then little by little, learning more, I started moving away from the photography, not away abandoning it, but away by extending it to other medium. But the benchmark still states the museum. That's where it started. It's still my benchmark. I guess for people who know you quite famously don't collect paintings or drawings, like you stick with photography, video, and then other, I guess, parallel mediums. Is there a reason why you don't collect paintings or you're not as maybe attracted to them? If you know me a little bit, you know that there's always a reason for yeah. why I do anything. So, <laughs> And where I'm, I've got a particular point of view is that I'm really coming from outside of the art world. No, nothing in my background. Either my parents were collectors. There's no artistry in my curriculum because I'm an investment banker. I was taught MBA material and things. So what makes it interesting is that Every step I make and everything I see around me, I am actually observing it, not taking it as taken value, as obvious for many people that are born and raised in art, they don't even notice because they always saw it done. Yeah. So coming from outside, give me another point of view. And one thing which is very clear, which has kind of struck me as um, strange is that I had, for example, a, a WhatsApp today of a guy who is a, a wine dealer and also a, an interior designer. And uh, he said, oh, I didn't like the uh, rencontre this year, but he's probably in his 60s. I don't like uh, what I saw here, all this thing about the woman and all those black people and all those things complaining and the whole, no, I, I, I don't like it. I like beautiful life, but maybe I'm, I'm past, he said in his WhatsApp. And I say, yeah, it's good that you realize you passed. But also it's the fact that in some way in the art world and in those kind of events, there's still that idea of exposing the world for what it is. Mm-hmm. The use of it, it's not clear. Whether it's going to change anything, it's not clear. But it's definitely, art is not only an outlet for wealthy people to feel comfortable. Yeah. So my answer to him was, it's nice that you're realizing that maybe you're, <laughs> you're past from that point of view. But the second thing is that don't worry, you go to art fairs and you find all the luxury good products that will f- make you feel comfortable as the upper class. Mm-hmm. It's an observation of today, but it's an observation I made 20 years ago. Oh, okay. Which means you have on one side artists, whether it's Nan Goldin or, you know, Andre Serrano, which were some of the first acquisition I made that, which are, that were kind of out of the mainstream, out of the normality. And they wanted to express the right to exist to that minority of the, that alternative viewpoints. And what I found strange is that, so in fact, they are kind of questioning and shaking up the, the status quo. And what is interesting is that to survive, just to buy food, put food on the table and rent their apartments, they need the support of the mainstay of the status quo, the wealthy people. Yeah. So... The same way as in society, I think we're un- underestimating comfortably that kind of class struggle. In the art world, it's the same. So what do we have objectively? We have something like 50,000 collectors buying 10 works per year or more. And we have in front of them 50 million artists that are trying to make a living and survive. So who's deciding what 
is selling is the 50,000 collectors. And those 50,000 collectors for something which is very, that I cannot understand, even being part of that upper class, is they consider that any trace of painting on a canvas is art. When photography, as you know, you have yeah. to justify the edition and so on, and I can do it myself and so on. And plus, plus all the rest, you know, Barbara Kruger said, you know, I'm tired of having to justify that what I'm doing is art. When painting, there's never a problem. Yeah, it's also true. it's also the most speculative instrument. That means if you want to make money out of it, of art, you buy painting, and it's easier to store and to preserve. So at the end of the day, very clearly, there's a domination of the art market by painting. And then, in my opinion, if an artist decides to express himself, herself, they self, as you know, we need to be careful now, in any other medium than painting, I think it's courageous. And then I, I think he deserves my support. Also, because there's not many other people giving them this support. So I decided very early on to focus on uh, anything but painting and drawings. Okay. For me, my kind of, I guess, journey to the art world, to the market and everything else, that started when I had the idea to open a gallery. And I think up until that point, my relationship to this industry was very surface level. And going to museums, buying a few pieces, you don't really kind of get the full picture of it so was there a similar point for you where not necessarily things clicked but that you got another view of the things and you kind of understood okay there's a bit more to this than just these are nice works and i would like to buy them the art world is um i like to compare it to theater you know as an outsider a visitor you just enter the room the hall and you sit down and then you're you're watching this spectacle that is giving on, on stage. Mm -hmm. Everybody behind the stage and behind the curtains knows that it's all fake. <laughs> Everything is fake. But there are many people that are sitting comfortably in the room and they are very happy never to move from that room. The very funny thing in my history is that I enter through the backstage yeah. in the art world because, first of all, it was other times it was something like 25 years ago so the 90s yes 95 96 and i had a close friend which was a youth friend who started working with a gallery in new york that i never heard about that had one location on madison avenue called uh, larry gagosian oh so yeah now you say wow but at the time really it was not wow it was yeah, one, one exactly, gallery yeah. among others because he had only one location and larry was larry but he still didn't have that kind of um power and influence what is interesting is through that friend without collecting it's like two years i was hanging around all the mega stars of the current art market whether it's amy capelazzo dominic levy tony shafrazi david zwerner anton kern and so on and i mean there was no one so we were friends so in a way I, I entered through the backstage, yeah. which put me in a very particular position. And I was in the backstage before buying my first work of art. So it makes it something very unique mm. as, a, as a point of view, which means that you write, you enter yourself as a visitor, I would say, and then suddenly you realize that there was something behind. And it's funnily enough, I never had that illusion. Yeah, that's interesting. Was that around the same sort of time that it did really become a, a lifestyle for you? Because it's not really, 
the same as when people just want to fill their homes with beautiful things. I feel like for you, collecting art and your involvement in the contemporary art world, it's not limited to, well, actually, it's nothing to do with speculation or with trends or with anything else. Like you have a, there's something else really driving your involvement with what you do. There's many things in your question. So <laughs> one is uh, we know each other probably 10 years or something. So I'm involved for 25 years. So at the time I started getting involved because then you see me having the time to go around, see a lot of things, you know, spending a lot of time and on the art circuit in some way. So you think I'm doing that that's the only thing I'm doing. Um, no, of course not. And I guess no, you wouldn't no, have started no, no, but like that. No, but, but it's, it's, a, it's a legitimate question. Yeah. Um, seeing my way of living particularly today, even 10 years after you know me. So first of all, yes, that, that element of time. So actually when I started collecting, I had a nine to five mm -hmm. job and it was very hard. I remember my very frustrated experience that when I started wanting to see art, I said, what the hell are those lazy gallerists? Because the thing was they were closing at six, which is the time I was leaving the office. They were sometimes closing during lunchtime, which is the only time when I could sneak in sometimes during my lunch. Mm -hmm. And they were open on Saturdays only when on Saturday I was about to have children, young children. So I said to myself, but what the hell is this system where you need to be either extremely wealthy, either unemployed to go to galleries. Yeah. So that's the circumstances where I started. The second part of your question is, yes, as you see, my way of considering the arts is not a leisure. No, I mean, it's not like a passionate hobby. Like it's really part of who you are. Yeah, it's a, it's a philosophy in some way. And it's, it's also the reason of my involvement in art is that in a way, you know, my upbringing was in humanistic science, like Latin and Greek and philosophy and sociology and the whole thing. And I was passionate by it as I was passionate by the financial markets as well. But art allowed me to express these parts. And I thought that it was a very important part of society. I thought about it early on and I think about it even more, the more my involvement is, is that it's, it's in some way artists one of the last way to build bridges between people. Mm -hmm. So I'm not taking it lightly. It's not about collecting luxury goods or impressing my friends or, or other things. It's really about making some difference in society because we have all the same question. You know, I don't like the way the world turns, mm -hmm. but uh, what can I do to make anything to change it? So yeah. I think an involvement in art is, first of all, I don't think we can change the entire world, even as a US president or well, the British prime minister, I realize today, where Boris Johnson is at last ejected. But, you know, as a simple human, how can you change? So, and I think that the art world is one of those tiny minority, even if it's changing, where, you know, people are open-minded and you can discuss. So, and you can show different point of views. And what I've seen, and I was alluding to my friend that was tired of hearing about women and blacks and everything. But in a way, I mean, it's at least we are listening to them. Uh, yeah. and, and that Verbund uh, collection exhibition is reminding the, the fight of women in the 1970s to get there. So yes, it has become much more that, that element of 
philosophical element of my involvement in art is more important than the physical elements of it. The investments, definitely, because for different reasons, I don't think art is an investment at all mm-hmm. for technical reason. I mean, the, the bid offer spread, which in the difference between the, the price at which you can sell and all the commission in the middle is something like 30 to 100%. So you need to have a rise in price of 30 to 100% before you recover your money, which is kind of a little bit of, okay, it can happen, but you can as well play the lottery and you, you look can be also to reach higher multiples. So it's, it's more, um, a way of living. That's very important. And I give you a tiny little personal example that happened recently is that, you know, the Ukraine war started in February 24th. And then I was there. I, I, I thought that the Ukrainian would be wiped out by the Russian, like many people thought too. And I said, what can I do? And of course, they were fleeing their country and they were looking for, and I can imagine, I mean, suddenly one, two, three, four, five million people leaving. What can we do? And no state can do something. So we need as individual to do something. So as my children are, are grown up and left the house, I had an entire floor of 100 and 40 square meters available, fully equipped uh, with the two rooms and two bathrooms and so on. So I said, okay, I will get them inside my house. Many people of my class, again, said, okay, it's nice to help. It's nice eventually to lend them some apartment that we're renting to people, but get them in your house. Are you really serious? It's supposed to be very precious, secret, and so on. But I said, you know, guys, I mean, I don't have any apartment for rent, um, so I have no choice. And uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's, it is risk. But risk is part of, of being involved in art and collecting art as well. So eventually I said, you know, if I'm logical with myself of what I do in art, I need to do it. Uh, so it's, it's a continuity, which is directly linked to the same involvement I had in arts. And so I have this family for four, four months now and it's going extremely well. And of course, it's strange to be, uh, upper class and to have to fix a schedule to go to your kitchen because they, I mean, we share, we, we're sharing hours for the kitchen. So yeah. it's kind of not the usual way of living of, uh, people like, like me, but it works very well. And for me, it's, it's very natural. So yes, you're right from that point of view. And another example why I, I, because I'm testing myself about that, you know, am I really having that kind of, philosophical and intellectual involvement in arts and you know another way for me to answer that question is that i really don't care what will happen to the collection after i die Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter because in some way my children will decide and yeah whatever they will decide or if they want to discuss about it to get rid of it in before i die i can discuss it with them but i have no intention of building a mausoleum to my genius uh, <laughs> or my intelligence with my names uh, bigger than two meter high like some people in berlin but yeah because art gave me something every day you know yeah going 22 years in a row to Arles is a little secret, but it's definitely adding to my quality of life. The people that I've been meeting tonight, I'm going to have dinner with a, a Moroccan woman having a, a nonprofit organization in Morocco. And, you know, it's encounters that are, are fabulous in some way. And the way it's, it changed my view of life from my upbringing in some way, I'm really thankful to art. And that's why, that's why I will keep what will happen with the physical object when I die will be um, for someone else to take care of. Yeah. So you're less concerned about 
it sounds like for you then the kind of the patronage or the support is in acquiring of the works, not the works themselves. Like you're helping the artists to continue making work. Yes, exactly. I, I would say in a synthetic way, my role is is double. Is first is to preserve works that I find important. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, here in Arles, there's a beautiful um, exhibition of a young French artist in Mexico. It's called... Um, Venturi, or I don't remember what his name is. But I saw the exhibition this morning with him and I thought, wow, it's a great, great documentation of, uh, of that region of Mexico in a very smart way. And in a way, individual works would not work. I mean, it's the whole thing uh, in some way because an individual work is like a souvenir. It's like if you buy, um, I don't know, a belt of uh, Gucci because you you like the kind of the evening um, fashion uh, show. So <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous. So in, in one way, I, I'm thinking, okay, who will preserve this otherwise? So it's my role to preserve it, then to lend it to museums. That's the main thing we are doing is really to be in very strong and deep discussion with museums to lend them and we lend a lot of works so it's to preserve the works before the museum realizes it's important because very often they've got another point of view very very often more historical so it's more about who will preserve the works that are just brand new uh, in many ways which is very few uh, museums do that or take that risk because it could happen it happened to me that some artists become a real estate agent at the end of the day so you know, in a way, it would be considered a failure by the museum. So I don't want to wait that long. So first is preserved. And the second is injecting money in the art world uh, so that um, galleries, but also uh, artists and, and museums can go on with their, their mission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important uh, responsibility. And I, I see... An interesting development recently, which is really, really, really annoying me, is that, as you know, I'm coming from the financial world and I really consider that it's a little bit my responsibility to re-inject a little bit of that surplus that we make, uh, not always in the most moral way, insights, you know, more useful uh, activities. But... And it's the role that we have to play. At least we are the lucky few at, up there for whatever reason of the, our past or what, what we did or our families and so on. So we should do something about it. The thing is, what I see is that, you know, I, I believe strongly in mentorship. I had mentors myself, which saved me time and gave me confidence in going in the direction I wanted to go. At the time, I, when I was alone and I, you know, when you're alone, you're a little bit scared of whether you're making a mistake. So having mentors is extremely useful. So I'm trying to mentor as well, as much as I can. Young and collector, but my, my goodness, I mean, all of them after two or three or four years of getting to understand what are these suddenly they want to be a bloody gallerist or, <laughs> you know or they want to make money or they want to start a, do a startup in art uh, to fucking make money in arts and i say to them guys i mean why you do that i mean i have a friend who's a notary uh, he was a notary can you imagine being a notary at 30 years old or 25 years old i mean it's a dream i mean it's a dream or a nightmare whatever you want to do in your life but in a way i mean you can make money you can provide a proper service a useful function in society but take the money and spend it wherever you want you know if you want to make a difference spend it in whatever uh, philanthropic um, missions or arts if you're passionate by art and you know art but 
it's great because we need more money in art. So what the hell now you want to get money out of arts, which is completely ridiculous because then who the hell will feed the beasts in many ways? And the beast is becoming bigger and bigger. And, you know, in a way, then money becoming the rule of the game. And that makes me extremely sad and extremely worried because it's, it's not the first time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I spoke to Georgina Adam about this a while ago when I interviewed her. And what I've also discovered, like when I try to teach photographers and other artists about it, is the, I guess, the market, the industry itself is actually quite small, relatively speaking. Like if you look at it on a global scale, it sort of hovers between 50 and $60 billion in turnover, which, you know, companies like Apple and Walmart one like entity make more than an entire industry so even to enter the art world to make money is in itself kind of naive and you would be lucky as you said before just to buy a lottery ticket if you thought that would be your ticket to kind of riches really yeah but anyway let's not get into that because those figures are big lies it's always Dandam is quoting the figures of her best friend Clara McAndrew which is paid by UBS and uh, Basel to make the frog look bigger than it is. Um, oh, so you think it's less than that? Of course, it's less than that because they're mixing up antiquities and they're mi- mixing up all kind of different things, whatever, without defining really clearly what the cut are. I mean, it's a big mix up of things. And you remember there was the case uh, a few years ago of very annoying things because, as you know, the art market report is coming from the TIFAF art market reports. And the TIFAF art market report, when, when very unfortunately, Karma Kendrew was acquired by uh, Art Basel for this art market reports, um, TIFAF went on with another academic. And she came, it was very annoying. That's why they stopped immediately is that on the same year, they had two reports and one was 10 billion under the other. Yeah. And so despite all the efforts to justify the whole thing, it still it showed very clearly that that famous art market report survey is nothing more than a very biased finger in the winds. Uh, this is going in, in a convenient way for the industry, which is the one, what it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go away from finance and and back to art. I guess I visited your collection in Brussels and I've seen selections of it the year that I was there for Art Brussels with other Belgian collectors. And I think it wouldn't be an understatement to say that a lot of the work that you're drawn to and that you collect isn't easy art. And even people like Nan Golden and Andrea Serrano it can be appreciated in a museum, but it's not typically the kind of thing people would see at a fair and go, oh, I want that in my house. That's beautiful. For you, what draws you to certain artworks and why? I mean, they obviously they elicit a very primal response when you see them. Maybe I'm already answering your question, but maybe you can talk a bit more about what it is that when you see a work, you're like, that is important and I need to think more about that piece. Because you're, like, I think even we've said before, your activities, the fact that you're hosting Ukrainian refugees in your house, I think you're something of an anomaly amongst your peers that are also in the art world, in finance, in that kind of level of society. Yes, yes and no, because, you know, it's like everything else. Our, 
I would not dare, let's not call it good or bad, but let's call them true or not true collectors, but they are also true and not true artists and true and not true gallerists and true Correct. and not true curators and true and not true museum directors. Absolutely. So whether you call them good or bad or true or not, it's the thing. I mean, when I see in Germany where you're coming from, Harald Falkenberg, I mean, when nobody cared about Paul Tech and he said, what the hell is this genius things? And he bought massively those very early works, which are the most important, which are like flesh machine, like, I mean, in some way, very disgusting and frightening. Plus many, many other things. If you see Ingvild Goetz, uh, if you see... Uh, Ulysic, if you see Patricia Sandretto and so on and so on. I mean, Antoine de Galbert, the Glenstone Museum. I mean, those true collectors, they go to places where the normal people don't. And it's the same with the best director. You know, what is making Tarantino when Tarantino was doing those very gory movies that people said, you know, they didn't know whether they needed to like them or hate them. It's the same, the same with rap music, the same with hip hop, the same with, with many other things. So in a way, the true collectors is, you know, the, the way sometimes I make um, an allegory about it, it's uh, I mean, two things. First, the basic of all this is is the allegory of the cave by Plato is that you know at the end of the day we are all chained at the bottom of a cave and we see shadows and maybe I took that uh, red pill uh, and I realized that like in Matrix I'm not living a proper life uh, having a nine to five job and I'm maybe the, the the world is not the way it, I've been told it was so unfortunately when you take that red pill I mean you cannot come back and in a way you behave in a very strange way and I think it's the same with all those true collectors it's those it's really people that took the red pill mm -hmm. and as you know then not many people took the red pill and use because if you have to make the choice of taking the red or the blue and go back to your previous life it's an easy choice so first the allegory of the cave second is in that context what do we have we have if we have true artists, we know from history, from El Greco for, to uh, Caravaggio or, or uh, Pollock or, or, or Warhol even, or, or Dali or Picasso or whoever you want, or the Monet of this world, you know, when they were studying creating, nobody liked them. I mean, they were sometimes very violently rejected or mocked very often when there was art criticism, which they're not very much anymore. But it was very, very violent in many ways. So, you know, for me, a, a, a true artist is someone that is kind of absorbing like a funnel, all the energies of the world around them. It's very important because for me, an important artist is related to the life in you know, the time he's living it. It's the most important element to distinguish it. So he's absorbing the energies around him, which can be personal or social or sociological in, in many ways, or scientific. And like it was here as well with von Kuberta playing around with artificial intelligence. So it kind of take that energy and transform it in a work of art. If he's a true artist, again, I'm not using good artist, but for me, he's good artist. If he's a true artist, he will not be understood by 99% of the population, which will say, what the hell are you talking about? Like Paul Tech, I was mentioning, like Nan Goldin at the time when she was taking those pictures of her friends and so on and so on. So it's very easy. If the message is sent by a broken emitter, 
like a yeah a broken emitter in many ways. What will save it in many ways is that there will be some broken receptor. And I say broken without any pejorative way. For me, it's nice to be broken because it makes your life much richer. It makes your life much harder, but it makes it richer. So, I mean, either you commit suicide, either you <laughs> manage to survive, and then you are, you are maybe, I mean, look at look around you. I mean, <laughs> look at those guys, Elon Musk, Zuckerberg, and so on. I'm not really sure in what part they are, but definitely they're different. And because you're different, you have more time because you've got less of a social life. So it helps. So at one point, good art goes from a good artist, broken emitter, to a good collector, which is a broken receptor. And that will preserve it until the mainstream of some part of the mainstream slowly get to adopt it. And it's uh, interesting because then it's, um, it goes um, it's goes very slow. And then 100 years later, everybody wants to have a T-shirt with money on it. Okay. Uh, and everybody says, oh, money is so fantastic. And everybody buys fake money as NFTs to show that it's really getting into the mainstream and then to the trash in some way. So that's the, that's the, the thing is that... It's not that I do it on purpose, it's that I'm just, I'm sensitive to things. And then you write, uh, many people come and visit the collection and say, oh, your collection is very good, but I could never live with what you're living with. <laughs> but it's true. Uh, and I can live, and for me, it's the reverse. I could never live with eye candies. Mm-hmm. I mean, those eye candies make me crazy, uh, like a, a Netflix series or, you know, little, little big things or, I mean, the stupidity of it is for me infinite. So, uh, it's the reverse. I could never live with it because I could never go back to the matrix. Yeah. Obviously I'm not to that same extent, but I also feel like there's a lot of things that for me, once I know them, it's hard for me to unknow them. And it's difficult to go back to to being ignorant for want of a better word because you think oh that would be a lot more comfortable but then you're like i know that i'm i'm going against what i know to be true and i think yeah you make a good point even talking about letting people stay in your house because you think well if i'm really living to these philosophies and i'm going to be true to myself and this is something that i should do even though it kind of puts me out of my comfort zone a lot of the things we've touched on I don't like the word spiritual. But, but you are in, the, in a different position, which is, I think, important to notice because I'm aware of my privilege mm-hmm. that I can behave like this because I am in the position that I am in socially and financially. You're a gallerist, and it's for me something very hard because I think that you believe in, if you're a good gallerist, again, if you look at the history of the, of the good galleries, uh, even Peggy Guggenheim or the Volard and the others of those time, I mean, they could in some way do what they wanted. Today, you have no choice because you're part of an industry and either you die in glory and grace, bankrupts of defending the artists you believe in, or you need to go for the mainstream things and sell whatever luxury goods people will buy. So unfortunately, and I'm very aware of my privilege from that point of view, which is very few people. That's why it's even reinforced my responsibility because uh, in a way, I mean, I'm one of the very few that can afford to really defend what he believes in. Yeah, I guess given how how involved you are with everything, the amount that you see. And I worry myself this sometimes with the, uh, the amount of input that you get from the art. Do you worry as a collector and someone that is so kind of involved in it that you'll get to a point where it won't be interesting anymore? 
because lots of big collections sometimes just suddenly stop or whoever was involved retires and they're like, actually, no, I've, I've seen enough things. It's going back to your my initial comments is I'm here for 22nd time and I told you that I'm still discovering things. So, and I, despite the fact that supposedly the traditions say that things are supposed to wear out. Yeah. The same with being in love with your wife or, you know, or your children or um, eating chocolate or things you're supposed to change your tastes and you know, get, getting tired of it. There are many things I'm not tired of. I don't know. I can watch The Godfather like 15 times every time I see it coming on TV. I will never resist. Or Interstellar. I mean, every time at the same moment I will cry. So, I mean, that's one thing. Second thing is that no, you're mentioning an interesting point, which is about the collection reaching a peak. That's very true. The big challenge is is to renew yourself. Can you stay flexible? And we go back to my friend that I mentioned earlier, 60 years old, and he was he was a kind of advance in contemporary art things and so on. But at one point, and I, I was meeting a, a friend collector, a Spanish one, and he said, you know, I cannot go forward to people I don't know. Oh, okay. You know, it's that's comes with age in some way, and that's where you know, conservatives comes up as well. Is that yeah. in a way you want to stick to the people you know, and the things you know very much, going to the same place and doing the same things. And for me, that's the very early sign of death. I am not in that position, which makes me sometimes call myself younger than my children <laughs> because they, they stick to the same places, the same people and doing the same thing all the time, which is kind of very hard for me to understand. But to go back to what you were telling me is that, first of all, yes, the challenge is to keep changing. And the changes are massive. Uh, you know, when I was a kid at school and university and till 20, 22 years old, and I never thought that I ever had met a gay person. I saw the first time two guys kissing in my 29th or 30 years old, which is very late in many ways. So in a way, suddenly you're opening up to another kind of reality and to, you need to adapt and yeah. realize how stupid you were from before and how you need to make an effort to rewrite that history. It's the same with, with art, but also with society. I mean, one of the big movement and the big thing happening right now in the art world is decolonization, which is not about quitting the colonies, which we did 50 years ago, but it's actually absorbing the impact of what we did. And very often it's, it's a discourse even in Belgium that we're not ready to make. So it's an evolution that you need to make very much. So the first thing is, yes, you need to stick with what's going on with the evolution of the world. That's how you can manage a, a relevant collection because otherwise I see also sometimes I meet collectors a little bit older than me and they're still obsessed with minimalism. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, Arte Povera and things and it's lovely, but it's it's not the flavor of the day. It's not even the flavor of the day in terms of market. It's the flavor of the culture in many ways. So some part of it, but some sometimes not. So first you need to renew yourself continuously and then understand that, yes, you might dare to go to places where things are new and the new creativity. And, and it's true that it's, it's a challenge because now I adore history in general because I learn immensely from it. And I give you just an example to give you how hard it is to build a relevant collection is that if you were starting collecting in 1949, you needed to collect Pollock. 
Okay. Around 1954, 55, you needed to go to, um, Jasper Jones and Robert Rauschenberg. Already kind of a gap. Then in 1963, you had the Campbell soups of Warhol. And in 1969, you had to go for the steel works by Donald Judd. So from 1949 to 1970, which is only 21 years, you have to go through immense transformation of your conception of what art is mm -hmm. and what of the world is. So it's an immense challenge. But in a way, uh, and sometimes I meet collectors, I was meeting an American collector here that can hardly walk anymore, but she's still there every year. Yeah. Um, and it's remarkable because it keeps you young. So maybe you die actually in an exhibition, which will be bad publicity for the museum. But in a way, until the end, you are, you know, in charge of your, your future and you're not, you're not waiting for death by your bed. Yeah. In many ways. So yes, it's a challenge, but no, I don't feel, you know, I had to face in the last 18 months, the NFT wave and so on and get myself friends and enemies about it and so on. But it's a very interesting challenge to try to understand what's going on now. The same with all those things, you know, it's true. Is the gender going too far? Are we going too far in one direction? You need to ask yourself questions all the time. And those questions keep you alive. And so um, I feel very alive. Yeah. Oh, good. So if you... But it brings one... Sorry to answer your no, thing. No, because you, you are, you are, your question was about how does it feel to be involved after 25 years and more and more. I was speaking to a, a close friend in Berlin, somebody will at um, the Hamburger Bahnhof, and he said, how is it? I said, I'm accumulating so much knowledge and so much experiences from traveling. You were mentioning traveling because I love traveling. I love discovering other countries, other civilization, other ways of living, other foods, other arts. But then it isolates you from the mainstream. So the disadvantage of all this is I feel a little bit like a, a guy walking in the direction of the North Pole and I look around me and there's no one around. So I'm really on that track on that path, on that effort, I feel very, very lonely from that point of view because it's difficult to connect. You know, today in the art world, people speak about money most of the time. Yeah. It's very difficult to speak still about things. The museum, they speak about increasing their collection or what kind of money can they get from you? You know, the whole thing. So if you're really focused on art and creativity, then sometimes you feel a little bit lonely. I'm sure that many of my colleagues I mentioned the names before are feeling a little bit the same. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good point to close on. Thanks, Alan, for sharing. You've made it really easy for me with your detailed responses. And as always, like the insight. Thank you very much for taking the time. And, um, you know, let's stay in touch. Yeah, Show absolutely. Part two, we have a part two or three. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Perhaps next time I'm in Brussels, we can tee up a meeting. With pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Alain Survey and gained some new perspective of the art world. I really appreciated him taking the time out to share his thoughts and I hope that you took something away from it as well. I have linked to Alain's Twitter in the show notes together with details of the Surveys family collection which you can also visit in Brussels. If you'd like to know more about this or previous episodes of the podcast, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Subtext and Discourse Art World Podcast is streaming on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and every major podcast platform. If you enjoyed this episode and know someone else who would appreciate it too, please send them a link so they can benefit from the insights. That's all for now. Thanks again for tuning in. 
My name's Michael Dooney, and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.